If I told you I ran a content marketing agency, you're never going to remember me. But when I tell you I do content marketing only aimed at software developers, I guarantee you, you don't know another person that does that. I'm Jim Huffman, and this is If I Was Starting Today, a collection of conversations about half-baked startup ideas, growth tactics, and stories from founders, including my own journey as a business owner. All of the content is centered around one question. What would you do if you were starting today? In today's episode, I speak with Carl Hughes. He is the founder of Draft.dev. This is a productized service in the content marketing space. I mean, his business has grown well into seven figures. So if anyone in this podcast is interested in starting a company and not raising money, but trying to bootstrap it yourself, this one is packed with advice on how to do that, from how to do everything yourself in in the beginning, then eventually to firing yourself so you can focus on the high impact things. Carl hits on the importance of niching down, and his niche is very specialized, but that also allowed him to be the best. He also gives insights on how to get opportunities by investing in your network and building relationships, and he has some pretty cool advice on how to do that. And we just compare stories on trying to grow a company ourselves and the highs and lows of that. And he even gives some half-baked startup ideas for anyone that's looking to start something on their own. But Carl's a truly a, a, an original thinker and really hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the pod. Um, today we have someone on here who I'm meeting for the first time that I'm quite pumped to have on because I've been stalking him on the internet a little bit and reading his content. It's one of those things you start reading like, oh my gosh, this guy gets it. We think alike. And so really excited to, to have Carl. But Carl, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, it's great to be here, Jim. Thanks so much for having me. And I, I felt the same way listening to you the first time on, uh, I think it was the Tropical NBA podcast. They have interesting guests all the time, but it is really cool hearing somebody like yourself who's running a productized service and agency and has all this similar interests. And I was like, we got to meet someday. <laughs> yeah. And we're launching productized service. I was like, oh, there's so much we can learn from you. But I agree. Tropical MBA, indie hackers, mm-hmm. you meet the most interesting people. There's a, a friend of mine now, Tommy Griffith. He ran SEO at Airbnb and PayPal, and he's living that, that lifestyle has a very successful seven-figure business, works four hours a month, and is living the life. And I I love comparing notes with him, but I I met him through places like that. Whereas I'm doing the opposite with the agency life, and I have two kids, but I I live through him. But Yeah, I I think that's really cool how that community exists now. Because it used to be, like I, I started working for startups 10 or 11 years ago, and the only communities you'd find for startups were around the whole like, take venture money and do the whole big, go big or go home thing. And there's nothing wrong with that approach. Like all of our clients are that way. Our last few companies I work for have been the, the sort of VC model approach to fundraising. But just now that there's a community of like bootstrapped, like lifestyle businesses for the internet out there, it's like super cool because that's more, right now that's more my people. So it's nice to have them out there and be able to connect with them. I think that's where we should start is you have this really cool blog post on the like the options for entrepreneurship and then another one on how to fund your startup without giving away equity. Because I think you and I are going maybe not non-traditional paths, but you have these glorified paths, raise money and do all this. That sounds horrible. Like I don't want to raise money and have a board and then have to 10 exit. 
let's go to the other option. Actually, before we dive in, will you say like <laughs> you're the company that you have and what you do? Yeah, I guess we could start there, right? No, so I, I run a company called Draft.dev primarily. What we do is technical content marketing. Basically, we took the the whole idea of productized content and then we just do it for companies that want to reach software engineers. So we niche down really far. You know, what's cool about this, there's only 1,500 companies in the world we'd ever worked with. So it's a tiny pool. Love it. And yeah. And again, like when you're a big VC-based backed company, you can't go for a market that small because they tell you, you got to be in a $10 billion market. But like we can be in this tiny little niche and we can make fine little small business. We're now up to 13 full-time people and then 200 writers. Now our writers are all software engineers with a day job. They kind of do this on the side. So they're more or less gig workers doing a couple assignments a month, but it's a pretty good network. I mean, we work with like 90 clients. So like it's a, a lot of content we're, we're spinning through every month. And it's all because we've picked a super narrow niche where there weren't a lot of competitors and we were able to just narrow in on what we could do and focus and productize really tightly. And so, yeah, that's kind of what the business is and what we do. Okay, actually, we're going that path first because that's really good. And so you're doing something really cool because... To your point, if you go VC route, you need this thing called a big TAM, total addressable market. Whereas if you go this path that kind of you and I are going is bootstrapped, you can own majority, if not the whole company, and you can still make a nice seven figure business, have great margins and not have to have this board breathing down your neck. Like, all right, when are we going global? When are we doing this? And I think it's really intimidating for people to be like, I'm going to niche down and just focus on technical writing. That's so hard. Was it hard for you to make that decision to go all in on the niche? Or did you know like the riches are in the niches? No. Yeah. The fortunate thing and the reason that it wasn't hard for me to do this was I had been with two startups who had gone that like, we want to go for a big market. And I'd seen how hard that push is for them to expand. And when you're exactly right, like when a board and and your group of VCs and investors are telling you like, you need to expand revenue by 20% a month, every month, or else you failed, essentially, you will do all sorts of crazy things just to keep that number moving. And that means what they would do is do things like say yes to customers that weren't a good fit, just because they had to see those numbers keep going up. So what I realized was that was the flaw in those businesses was that they were forcing themselves to go too big too early rather than get really good at one little thing. So a lot of it was that. The other part of it was that I wasn't really looking to make a, a huge world-changing business necessarily. It's funny. You my want to make the that, world a better place? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I do want to make the world a better place, but it doesn't have to be at the scale of like every human in the world has to be affected. It's more like I, what I love about it is I get to make the world a better place for the 13 people who work with me right now and the 200 writers that work with us and our 90 clients or whatever. And, and that's good enough. That's a huge impact. Most people don't even have that much in their lives. So to be fair, I think you can make a big impact. You don't have to be the biggest impact to still be very important or like useful. I think the way I think about it is like we, the kind of businesses we're starting are essentially the corner store of the internet. Like you can, instead of being location-based and and niche down, we're like industry-based and niche down. And so I think that's where, to me, I just see the world going this direction. This kind of zooms out a bit further, but the whole idea of you go to your local marketing agency in Chicago, downtown Chicago, and their big high-rise office that knows nothing about your industry, but they're just the well-known name in your world. That doesn't that shouldn't exist anymore. It doesn't make sense for most of the companies that we work with or, or others. Anyway, all that said, I think I see a ton of opportunity still for these kind of small niche businesses that do something really narrow. They can maybe be at most a $10 million company. And that doesn't sound, I don't know, it feels more achievable too. As a founder, you 
want to jump into something you feel like you absolutely can do. And that kind of gives you the confidence to go to that next level. Yeah, especially as an agency or product type service owner, whenever you niche down, it gives you this confidence like, hey, we don't do everything, but we do this one thing. And by the way, we're the best at it. And you, right. you hit on a number that I think people need to realize. We worked with David C. Baker, who is on the podcast, who's like the consultant's consultant. And he said, as long as you can have a, a hit list of potentially like 2000 customers to go after, that's a business. And I totally agree. Like, you're also pairing that with this movement of it's no longer, hey, go to a big full service agency that does everything. No, it's this long tail of get these specialists for things that, that people do. And and we see that with our clients. And it's been hard for us to like niche down. But when we do, it's such a huge unlock. So good for you for having the chutzpah to do that from day one. So well done. <laughs> I think it's easier to do from day one, though, to be honest. I think this is one of the challenges when I talk to a lot of other agency owners is that they they've gotten themselves too far down the road of having this broad set of services. So if you make, you think about this, like you make, you've got 10 employees, you make a few million bucks or something in revenue, but you do a hundred things for each of those for a few clients you've got. It's really hard to all of a sudden cut off 99 of your own arms to keep the thing running with one. So I think it, honestly, like if this is one of those things I'm really curious to hear is if you or, or anybody's met like agency owners who have gone the other direction and really niche down and like what that path is like. Because I feel like that would be way harder than starting from a niche where you have like a very specific set of, of things. I can only speak to us. Like for me, our main issue is when we started, we were a little too broad, like growth marketing agency. I don't want to say growth hacker agency, but we did ride that wave. And we would get like B2B, get SaaS, e-com. And I didn't want to say no to business because I'm just in survival mode. But then as you get up, for me, once we got our book of business up and I wasn't worried I'd lose everything, then I had the confidence like, oh, this is what we do well, but this is what we do really well. And that's what we focus on. And so it's kind of like chipping away to figure out what we were yeah. good at. And we've still done that too, to be fair. Like, I think every business is always constantly finding product market fit a little better and better all the time if you're trying to improve. And, and so for us, that's looked like we used to work with really early stage startups primarily, and we've moved to series A and up startups that have a little more established, I don't know, established team, a little more of uh, they actually know what they're doing as a business. They figured some things out. They've got some, they've got more funding. They've got, there's just a lot of advantages to moving up market a bit. So to be fair, like I think every company is probably always looking at, you know, how we can refine further who our ideal customer is, but yeah, it definitely helps to stick within a specific either geography or industry or specialization or some kind of like way that people can define you. Because the way I always think about this is just very clear illustration. If I told you I ran a marketing, a content marketing agency, even you're never going to remember me out of the million of content marketing agencies you've probably run across and individuals who do it. But when I tell you I do content marketing only aimed at software developers, I guarantee you, you don't know another person that does that. And if you do, it's only because you're in our niche already. So, but the, the great thing is we just always end up being people's referral source because there's just so few companies that do it. Yeah. You're like the guy for the thing, which is super impactful. So I want to get into, because people listening, they're thinking of productized services. I'd love to get into the advice you would give because you've clearly scaled this man. This is some, a, a really healthy size of a business. And so what are the things to do, the things to watch out for? But I guess even before you give that advice, just to give people some idea, how does like your model work? Is it like a fixed price? Is it 
five grand or 10 grand per month to get content or just so people understand the, yeah. the setup. The high of level, yeah. Yeah. So the way we do it, it, it's shifted a bit too, but but right now what we do is quarterly commitments where you buy a quarterly package of articles for the first round. And then from there, we usually sign clients to a six or 12 month contract for a slight discount. Everything comes down to a per article rate. And we have a standard rate that clients pay. It's gone up over time, obviously. I think one of the other big things that I was not afraid to do, but a lot of people get nervous about is just raising prices. Uh, And the truth is like, there's no harm at all in raising prices for new clients if you have a business that's already profitable, right? So you should always be raising clients or prices for new clients until you get to a point where people say no because of price. For raising on existing clients, that's a little more tricky and we don't do it immediately. But like one of those things that you want to slowly pull them up to the same rate if you can. But anyway, so raising prices is definitely one of those advice things I'll just throw in there. Yeah. So what's the structure for us? We basically get clients uh, where they've said, we know we want to do content. We know we, we our target market is software developers, data engineers, something in that space. But they usually have tried doing a little bit on their own, and then they come to us because they realize it's really hard to scale up to doing a consistent one to five posts a week. And that's where our sweet spot is. So most companies have head of marketing or DevRel that we work with, and we're pairing up with them to come up with the topic ideas. And then we go source that out to the right writers, and we have editors and tech reviewers in-house as well. So there's a whole machine, a lot of operational complexity that we've now got down to a very repeatable process. And I want to call something you're doing really well is when you're talking to your potential clients, you're not talking in terms of months, you're talking in terms of quarters. Because with the, any service business, it's and you're doing retainers, it's all about retention and the lifetime value. And that's really smart. Especially, I'm a little envious because with content marketing, it's a longer term play. So you yeah. have this longer horizon of how they view success. With some of the performance marketing we do, it's the what have you done for me lately business. And it's like, how are the ads <laughs> yep. this second? And you're like, oh my gosh. So that's good and yeah. bad. There's definitely like certain kinds of businesses that lend themselves better to ongoing work. And I think this is something to think about as you design your business. For example, there's a lot of companies out there that'll do like uh, one-time page or site redesigns or maybe even SEO audits. And you have to think like, that's a good service, but there's not much ongoing component to it. It's like one of those things people do every year or two, maybe three even. And so you really got to have a lot of deal flow to make a business like that grow. And whereas in our business, we can get at least half of our clients renew within a month of their previous contract ending. And, and the rest of them, it's like they're usually just on holding until they figure out budget and stuff the next quarter. So it's almost always repeat business, and especially once we get them onto the longer term contract. That's so smart. I, I have a really talented accountant where I've been begging her. I'm like, can we do a productized service together? Because her average retention with her accounting partners is like five years. You know? Yeah. <laughs> it's just, yeah. Because once you're in the finances, you, you're right. Yeah. Yeah. Once you're like locked in there, it's really hard to get those tentacles out. I think what's hard though about accounting and HR and other support functions is that they don't tie back to revenue as tightly. And one of the things you and I both have on the positive side is like companies work with us because they're aspiring to make more money, not save a little bit of money. And so if I'm thinking about the perfect service business or productized service, anything that contributes to revenue is going to be easier to sell and a lot more, it's always going to be perceived as more valuable, whether that's good or not, whether that's true or not. Yeah. Just generally companies aren't as they get more picky once you're down into like cost savings as your value add. That's really good advice. So some main takeaways, it's like niche down so you can be the best. Think in terms of like long-term contracts. And this happens with any business cycle when times are good or bad, they're looking to cut costs. And if you're tying what you do to revenue or profit, like, all right, we need to keep them because they're driving sales. Because if you're not a must-have and you're a nice-to-have, 
Oh boy, that's not good. And the one thing I don't I dislike about content to to be perfectly honest on the the downsides is that you don't see an immediate return. And so companies do have to have a little faith to stick with you. It's very hard to sell someone on the value of content in a short period of time. Like they almost have to come to us already believing in it. And then we can like say, yes, you just, if you do this for six to 12 months, you will see results, but you got to hold on. And unlike ads where you could probably get ads running in a month and usually get something going, at least some sales, whether that's profitable or not, that's a whole nother question. But yeah, that's, I guess there are, there's always pros and cons, right? Nothing is, no business is uh, quote unquote perfect. Yeah. And so as you were starting a draft dev, were you doing everything out of the gate, like the sales and the writing, or were you initially starting to hire or outsource or delegate? Because one thing, it looks like you have a really nice buttoned up system where I, I think you've even helped remove yourself from sales. Could you just give advice on along that journey where you're able to like either fire yourself from roles or to lean in the roles that had the biggest impact. Yeah. So I definitely did a lot in the very early days, probably the first three or four months I wrote all the articles in the first year I was looking at the records. I wrote over a hundred blog posts. And so I was writing a lot and um, <laughs> you know, to be fair, I like writing anyway. So it was not the last thing I gave or it was not the first thing I gave up. The first thing I gave up was editing because I really hate it. There's different advice, there's different ways of thought of how you should start the delegation process. The, here's what I do though. I track my time pretty religiously and I, ha- I divide it into different functional areas. And I did this from day one. So sales is one function, marketing is another function, editing is one, writing is one, account management and client relationships is another. And then I look at that on a weekly or monthly basis and say, what am I spending, let's say 10, 15 hours a week on? Because that's where I need to go higher now. So usually what I'll do is I will have my time really well like locked in and accounted for. And then I look at the processes that I'm doing and start to build actual processes that could be repeatable by someone else. So for me, the first things that I hired for, like I said, editing was a big one because it was it was very time consuming and it, it, it drained my energy, to be honest. It's very detail oriented work, which is not something I'm good at. And so when I looked at like my time spend plus the energy spend, I knew I was putting into editing. I was like, I've got to hire somebody here. My first like part time that became full time really quickly was an editor. I also started quickly like realizing that writing was a bottleneck and not because I didn't like it, but because it takes a long time to write these we write really technical, deep blog posts. They were taking me six to eight hours a piece sometimes. And so that I got off my plate. And once the production was off my plate, then it was like getting client management off my plate. So I hired an account manager and gave her a playbook on how to keep clients happy. And then the last thing most recently was sales. And sales was the scariest to me because people always tell you how hard it's going to be to get rid of sales. And plus, I'm not a salesperson. I mean, my background is software engineering and being a CTO, like doing it was fun, but it, I had no idea what I was doing. Like the first, I feel like the first six months, it was just like, I was every call. I was like, okay, let's see what I, what I do this time. Like it felt like every call is an experiment. So uh, needless to say, I bring in a salesperson. I'm like, I hope I can actually train them to like do fairly well. But <laughs> yeah, I, I talked to a lot of salespeople before as I was doing it. And I just started to ask them the questions. What do I need to give a decent salesperson to, to get them ready? I ended up hiring a guy that has worked out awesome, but he was not a traditional sales guy. He was an entrepreneur. He had owned his own business. He had worked solo for a long time. So I knew he was really a self-starter. He also was just super interested in what we were doing. He had actually applied for a couple different roles with us, like account management roles in the past. And when the sales role came up, I was like, all right, this guy loves what we do. He wants to do anything. He's like a scrappy, figure it out type guy. 
And he jumped in and has been great at just documenting things, learning how to do it. He's doubled his commission most months. It's just, it's awesome to see, but I got to give a lot of credit to him. Just, I got lucky to be perfectly honest. I don't know if I could replicate that again. No, it's really helpful though. Like you found a non-traditional salesperson, but someone that had those traits. Like they're not, anyone who's an entrepreneur knows sales because at the end of the day, you're selling something, right? And that they're, they are scrappy and just like hungry to learn. Cause I'm, and I'm going through the same thing. We just hired a VP of sales. It's his first week. And I'm like, yeah, I'm like, I never done sales till I did this job. And I'd go into means like, Ooh, how am I going to pitch it today? And even this week, it's like, oh, what's your sales script? What's your process? I'm like, why don't you just watch a call? (laughs) Here we go. But what other advice would you give? Because I agree with you. That's the hardest thing because that's the lifeblood of the agency. If it goes wrong, it goes very wrong. I think part of what made it easy is that a couple of things. One, we had good inbound deal flow because we had so many referrals, so much. We had invested in content marketing from the very beginning for the company. So we were starting to get organic, just like SEO based people booking calls. So we had both referrals and inbound was all of our sales. So that makes it easier because inbound sales are always going to be a lot easier. You've got this like trust level that's built up already versus the outbound where you're trying to prove yourself full time. So that's part of it. And then part of it was our offering is just so dead simple. I actually think that one thing that reason agencies can never hire a salesperson is just that they offer too much. And so you need to have a very, you need to have the subject matter expert be your salesperson because they're going to convince you that they know everything. We don't have to do that on a sales call. He doesn't have to know anything about writing for engineers. He just needs to understand that we have a process that ensures we can do it consistently for lots of clients. And then he just conveys that process. And that is such an easy sale compared to convincing someone that you know what you're talking about or that you're the expert on it. So uh, those would be my two biggest takeaways. Yeah. That's really helpful. With the product service we're trying to launch, I think that will be easier because straightforward. The agency growth, it is a little tougher because they do want that thought leader, that expert sometimes. That's really good advice. So an- another thing I want to hit on, because you and I, like, we're not just sitting on stacks of, of Benjamins from the-, the venture capital firms throwing money at us. Like, We make money, we put it into the business. And I think the most important job as a founder is capital allocation. How are you using your money to grow? And for us, it's investing in people. So you talked about these key hires. Can you talk about making these hires, but also managing the cash flow? So one, you have healthy reserves. Two, you can pay yourself what you want, but also you can pay these people. But any insight on that? Yeah. That, I agree, is one of the hardest things. Uh, Again, like maybe it's just because I'm a new founder. Maybe it is just always hard. I didn't realize how much growth would just suck out cash. And what I mean by that is what happens uh, that you maybe don't realize is like you grow and that means you sign new clients. But if they don't pay immediately on signing, which is the case for most service businesses, they pay either upon delivery or even net 90 or 60 or 30 after delivery. Um, So if that happens, what happens is you sign the client, you do a bunch of work, you pay the people for their work, then you get paid by the client. And so that's okay if you're a steady state business, it's the same size all the time, because then you can just use last month's clients who paid to pay your people. But when you're growing and doubling every three months, like we were last year, it is almost impossible. And you can get yourself into a real tricky situation. So like around October last year, I think I had five or six full-time people and it got down to where in the bank, like half of what payroll should be. And it was a week or two before the end of the month. And I'm like, I don't even have this much in my personal account. Like, what am I doing here? It was a lot of sleepless nights thinking about. 
I did all the things that I should have done months ago. Like I got a line of credit, which, you know, if you have any kind of cash flow in your business at all, you should go ahead and just do and just up it every year if you're growing. And, and so I got a line of credit. And the other thing I did was immediately for all new clients, switched the terms for payments to be quarterly and upfront rather than monthly and after delivery starts. And that just completely changed the business from a cash flow perspective. Now we're always sitting on a lot of cash that we're ready to like hire people ahead of revenue and hire people and make sure everybody's, we've all got all the, the support we need to keep growing. That's such good advice. I had a very similar situation in that like we would invoice. It was so dumb looking back on it. We'd like work, we invoice after 30 days and then it's a 30 day payment term. And I'm like, Mm -hmm. oh, I'm not getting paid for 60 days. At best. That's if they don't like (laughs) accidentally not pay you for an extra 30 days because their accounts payable is probably slower. Um, Yeah. And so when I, one of the best uh, unlocks for me was hiring our accounting partner. I'm not going to say her name on the podcast because I don't want to steal her. She's like, what are you doing? She's like, you need to invoice upfront, do 28 days. She took our accounts payable from, it was horrendous, like 60 to 24 days. You're doing something really smart too with the quarterly payments. I have a buddy that does subscription stuff and they do annual payments. So there's this metric, a cash conversion cycle where you can have a negative one and you're just genius. Yeah, man, that's stuff that when you're bootstrapped, you've really got to think yeah. through the true balance sheet and the how everything flows. It's crazy. And part, of it, part of it you have to think about is it even possible for your client base? So one of the advantages, again, we have with this market is that they're mostly venture-funded startups who get a big chunk of cash and then they are you know, tasked with deploying it for the next year. And so they don't mind paying the quarterlies. We actually, we offer a monthly payment, but it's a, at a premium, like a 10% premium. So like they don't mind going for the quarterly payment because it's like, we've got the cash anyway. They know they're going to spend it. It's the same kind of thing that all SaaS companies do. You buy the year long at front, up front, and they're going to give you a 10 or 20% discount. And I think that's really powerful just because, yeah, as you say, like as a service business that's mostly bootstrapped or, or all bootstrapped, you're going to have to figure something out to get those influxes of cash unless you want to live on a line of credit all the time, which is to me a little scarier. Yeah, totally. Yeah, that I, that keeps a lot of things keep me up at night. That would definitely keep me up. So totally. It's going really well. You, you're able to not have to work in the business as much. And now you can work on the business. And I will. So, and what's been best for driving business? I think you mentioned organic and just having good reputation in referrals. Are those kind of the the key drivers? Niching down and referrals are super tightly connected because like I said, when I mentioned we're the only content agency you probably know of that works for software engineers or writes content for software engineers, that's just, that's a referral magnet. It means all your existing clients, when they run across people in their industry at trade shows or events, they all talk about, oh yeah, who are you using for content? Yet that really helps. And also then in addition to that with the referrals in the same vein for referrals, because we don't do content strategy, we don't do like full service SEO stuff. We just write the content. We end up getting a lot of referrals from other companies that are individual consultants who just do the strategy side. So I've noticed this a lot, like a lot of mid to senior level people in their career, they'll go out and become consultants and they'll get two or three clients that they work with at a given time and they just do the strategy and advising for them. They don't want to go in and write blog posts though. That's the really low level stuff. And so they'll usually give those companies like, here's a playbook of the content you should write. And then that company will take it to us or the, the consultant will recommend. And draft.dev is the kind of place you could go to to get this content executed. So by by 
again, narrowing the scope of what we do, we end up not competing with people and they're willing to send us business. And then we send them business right back when it comes up. So those have been a couple of the big things. And then everything else is SEO and or just organic social mentions, which is, is close to referrals. It's just I see all the time, like people mention draft dev on Twitter because somebody asks about developer content or something like that. That's really good advice, especially like looking at these partners being very complimentary where you can help them and they can help you. And it's not always a knife fight competitive for business. Very cool. So what is the goal with draft dev? You have this business that's running well. Is it have it run itself? You're going to go on an island and sit my ties. Like what, what's kind of like the next three, five, 10 years? I always joke like the kind of person who can actually make a passive income is not the kind of person who sits on a beach for 40 hours a week for very long. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like at first, it's funny when I started this, my goal was just like, Hey, I want to be self-employed for the first time. Let's see what happens. And got to that pretty quickly and then got to hiring a team. And now I've gotten myself out of most of the day to day. And my team is amazing. Like pushing it's another thing too, is kind of goes into the advice realm. It's just like, as a founder, you have to release the ego and push the decisions down the chain as much as possible all the time. And so it's funny, they, the team asks me questions and I say, I don't know, what do you think? Because I'm going to let you make that decision unless it's super critical, like a legal question that I better answer. So anyway, yeah, what do I want to do next? I've been lately moving in the direction of thinking about draft.dev as like a platform to get us started building something bigger. We're such a simple offering and you know, we do one very narrow thing. And so I'm starting to look at either bolting on other related services we could sell to the same market or buying other service businesses to bolt into here and build up a portfolio of offerings. They might all be niche and productized and very tightly scoped. But you know what I think we've got is a bit of a formula for building a sustainable like business that, that you can get a management team in and run it. And I think I'd like to see if I can replicate that. That's now the next big frontier challenge for myself. Yeah, you've proven you know how to run, stand up, and grow a productized service. It's take this skill set and apply it because there's this idea for people listening, like a roll-up model where you could do a roll-up of all these productized services. And if they are within that same persona or niche, there's so much like synergies with cross-selling and upselling, which can be really impactful. And it's funny because when you say productized service, you're like, oh, you got to focus on SaaS. You got to do something that really scales. But I will say like the service businesses, as much as people want to hate on it, which I hate on them too, there are some benefits that like they can be great cash flow machines. If you do it right, you right. get the cash up front, which can be this launch pad business. So I, I think that's super smart. Exactly. And you think about one of the challenges with doing a SaaS roll up is you're going to need to give away a lot of equity because the time to pay off is huge. Whereas in uh, a roll-up of service businesses, you can do it on debt or probably all to mostly debt, which means conceivably we could get to a point where we bought 10 or 20 service businesses without actually giving up equity to many people. And that's a huge difference. So there's pros and cons for sure. They're very people-dependent businesses. They are just by their nature, they're never going to be like a 80% margin type business like some SaaS companies can get to. But I think that SaaS has been a bit of a bubble at the moment and we're starting to see some of the edges pop in the public markets. But I think there's certainly value there. Absolutely. But is it a little overvalued because of investors just want to throw money at it? Like maybe. And so I think SaaS is in general, like most of the easy SaaS stuff is 
been done, the low hanging fruit, and they're starting to get saturated. And now people are more and more niche and those are smaller markets, not going to be quite as profitable. And I think there's still a lot of opportunities in service too. And I think that's also the other thing I always say is you don't have to do the same thing forever. <laughs> you know, just because I'm doing service businesses today doesn't mean in 10 years I'll be doing the same thing. Yeah. And this, there's this idea of like a launch pad business. Like it allows you to break out of your nine to five, set up this business that allows you to support yourself. And now it could allow you to fund that next thing, which is acquisition entrepreneurship or, or whatever it would be. But I'd be interested. Do you have any half baked productized service ideas that need to exist or ones you're thinking oh, so about? Many. And, so yeah. many. So <laughs> many. I, I don't know if you're like this, but I, I find the more I, the more I pursue my idea, the more other ideas it spins up. And part of it's because we have real customers now. You know what I mean? Like talking to customers every day gives me a million ideas because they all have problems and they're real B2B problems that they would spend tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars solving. A few that have come up lately, you know, honestly, this is like right next to what we do at Draft, but like documentation, developer documentation as a service is a big one that clients ask that we don't do. They ask a lot about uh, managing their newsletters, they ask about managing their social accounts. And again, all these could be niched down to the developer market and get, you could have this, again, this really interesting moat that most other content agent, general purpose marketing agencies wouldn't have. So yeah, there's so many services that you could take. And you're if probably if you're somebody whose like background is in law or medicine, you could probably go take those little segments and drop the same idea in there. And it would probably work because there aren't many other people going that narrow in what they scope their ideas down to. So I think there's just a ton of space. Yeah, I have a whole, I always keep a Trello board. Actually, it's public too, because I, if people ask me every now and then, they're like, hey, do you have any good ideas? I'm like, here's my ideas. I'm never going to have time to do them all. If you want, go look at them and steal them. Oh my gosh. I wish I would have seen that before the podcast. That's a whole episode <laughs> in itself. Can you cherry pick and give, I mean, you already listed a few. And I, I, I also like the, take what you're doing, do it for legal. Take what you're doing, doing it for architecture or real estate or whatever. And then also within your vertical, you're also hitting on when you say newsletters, social content, anything that's heavy volume and re reoccurring is gold, right? When you can niche down. Any other uh, ideas you want to cherry pick? Those are really good. There's a lot more in the, the technical services space too. Like I think this is another gripe I have with a lot of agencies that do software development. They usually just do general purpose. We'll develop any software you ask us to. I think that's a huge missed opportunity because what you really, to me, what you should be doing is picking like one thing that you do really well and just do that thing. So for example, Kubernetes is really popular in the developer space right now, and everybody struggles to set up and manage and maintain their Kubernetes clusters. It's a real pain. And we write a ton of content on it because it's so hard. A lot of our clients are building tools to make it easier. But I think a Kubernetes management service that just helps people like run, manage, deploy, scale up or whatever Kubernetes type clusters, huge opportunity there. Same with data warehouses. Right now, it's another huge topic for SaaS businesses building like tools for your data warehouse, data pipelining. If you're an, a general purpose development agency and you can niche down to like, all we do is build and improve data pipelines and we use these five tools and we'll just, we'll go in there and crank it out and then we'll offer ongoing support for X dollars a month. Like that, those to me are huge opportunities. And I don't see many agencies narrowly scoping themselves like that. And it would just be throwing clients all day if I found them. Man, that's such good advice. And whenever you can hone in on just a tech stack or a key thing, it makes your offering so much more scalable because you're not having all these custom jobs. It's like, we just do this and you, it makes it more scalable and repeatable. 
which is huge. I know from experience how it can go the opposite way when you just do custom projects. Yeah, the switching costs are big. Like developers are not general purpose. They have to learn a, a niche topic anyway. And so when you think about the retooling costs of hiring new people just to cover a new skill set, you know, say you, you want to go from WordPress to Webflow to Jekyll, like all these different platforms, you wanna, you're going to have to hire three sets of developers for that. That's just expensive and really time consuming and very difficult. Yeah. So exactly your point. Scaling is just way easier when you just pick, this is all we do. Let's just own it. Yeah, that's really good. One thing you and I were talking about before is we're looking at your journey. Like you've clearly done some cool stuff. It looks gravy. It's like, this is super easy. I'm gonna do what Carl did. But like you and I both know it's hard. And when you're kind of a solo founder, you're you're up at midnight looking in the dark for answers. It can be a little lonely when like COVID hits. It's I'd like to interact with another human here. Talk to me about like how you've dealt with the highs and lows, like when there is no playbook, you have to write it yourself and trying to lean on other communities or, or, or entrepreneurs. We, we both share this same like feeling that it is really hard mentally. It looks easy. And like when you talk about the steps, I can make it sound easy. But the mental challenge and the literally sleepless nights of just thinking about, am I going to make payroll? Do I hire this person? Is this client going to drop us? So many things like that kept me up in the early days. And and it's less frequent now, I'll say. I think maybe I've gotten over the hump of like, it feels like we have a real business and now it's just like steady state for the moment at least. But I could totally see if you know something like COVID hits and I own this business again, it's like, it takes a big dive. Like I'm going to be up all night again. It's scary. So a couple things that I found really helpful. One is from the early on, I started building like a bit of a another a founders network of friends. And I joined a mastermind group as well. That was really helpful. Since we've gotten a little bigger, I've joined an entrepreneurs organization, which is a, a global network of entrepreneurs. And you do like a monthly forum and um, they also have an accelerator program for companies that are a little smaller, but great, great group. If you aren't familiar with it, especially if you're in like service businesses or lower tech businesses, like, like we kind of are at the moment. Um, and then, uh, the other thing has just been like having people to talk to. I mean, I've gone through different, different iterations of this at at one point last February, I had like a therapist I worked with for a while. And I think that was pretty helpful lately. I've been working with a coach and that's been even more helpful. I think coaching and therapy kind of tends to have a blurry line. Like some therapists are are a bit more coaches and some coaches are a bit more therapists. So, uh, I don't know exactly how they define if there's like medical (laughs) definitions there, but for me, it was just having somebody to talk with who could push me towards like the goals that I wanted to set for myself and then also help me maintain the balance and like get some perspective on things because you're right. Like things have gone well, but that doesn't mean my brain is telling me all the time that things are going well. Like my brain is tricking me into (laughs) being afraid all the time. That's such good advice. I, I, I do something similar where I am. I haven't joined a mastermind, but I did join EO, I guess, six months ago. And for people that don't know, like one thing that Carl's talking about, you have this thing where you meet with a forum, which is essentially eight other founders. And the way you talk, you don't come in and be like, look how great I'm doing. You should do this. You should do that. It's more of experience sharing. And they're really like, if you try and flex and look cool, this isn't for you. It's more about being vulnerable and honest. So all, you'll be in there and there's someone and like people in our forums that are doing well into eight figures and they're talking about imposter syndrome. They're talking about, I don't know if I'm right for this. I don't know if I can do this. And it's, it's just very like assuring that like, Hey, everybody's going through their own stuff and you can kind of learn from others. And 
And that's been huge. And I don't know about you, but like I look at my career and some of the best opportunities came from my network or people I knew. And I've been so dumb and unintentional about investing in like professional relationships. I was like, mm-hmm. what if I, I don't know, was maybe proactive on that. So that was my thought with EO and even the podcast, but um, I haven't done a mastermind. I, I think that's a, a really smart, smart move yeah. as well. I also have, I, I actually uh, built up like a kind of a monthly check-in list of people about 50 or so uh, friends, peers, mentors, et cetera, that I just try to keep a bead on every month. So usually it's just a quick email. Sometimes it's a coffee and I'm constantly kind of like updating that list with the people I think I want to stay in touch with most and, and stuff that people have lifted me up or, or made me feel the best, or I've been able to help the most. Um, and that's been really helpful because I, I need a system. I'm, I'm like, I'm nothing lives in my brain. It's just like, I have to have it on a, a recurring reminder or else it's gone. And so to me, that's helpful. And maybe for other engineering types who like to have a system that that might be something to adopt. Can you talk about that? So it's like a list that's in like a sun or notion where do you hit up 50 people every month? Or is it more of, Hey, I haven't spoken to Brad in a few months. Let me like see how he's doing. Yeah. It's kind of like that. It's like, uh, it's kind of every week I have a recurring reminder to go to the top of the list and see who I haven't talked to in a while and just send a few emails out to catch up with people. And then, you know, just do four or five a week and you go through it, you know, within that the time period. And so I usually put like a date of last contact too. So I have something, but it's a very simple, it's just a spreadsheet. It's nothing, uh, nothing revolutionary, but, and again, you can't do that with unlimited number of people. And I think that's what I like about the system is like, I'm not expecting myself to stay in touch with a, a thousand people, but 50 or 45 or so is like a, a good balance where I feel like I can have a ma- like maintain a real personal relationship, but it's still like enough people that it's, it's significant. That's really good advice. Um, I might steal that idea from you. So, so very steal, cool. Steal away. The ideas are cool. always free, right, Jim? <laughs> <laughs> right. No, um, that's awesome, man. And so, I mean, one thing that I, I'm interested in is like you, like I kind of always ask this question, but like as you look back at like, you, you know, you've worked at big companies like CTO role, now you're doing your own thing. Like what's the nicest thing anyone's done for you in your professional career? Yeah, this is a man. This is a really good question. This is tough. Um, I I've had I've been really lucky with my bosses at startups that I've worked at. I've really liked them all, and I've stayed in touch with them. And um, I mean, they've all been really good about you know kind of being mentors beyond just me when I worked for them. Uh, I, I just maybe this is kind of like a this is a really small thing, but just thinking about it, it, it's probably not one thing, like single thing that anybody's done for me, but it's like thinking back to my two bosses at uh, Packback, the company I worked for several years ago, uh, Mike and Casey, they were both right out of college. And then they hired me as their first real full-time hire, first engineer. And, um, you know, they kind of bared with me through the whole, like me learning to be a manager and, and learning to be an engineer, a real engineer with like reports and, and they were learning it too. But like, they were, they treated me like a co-founder, despite the fact I was not really. I mean, I was in all the important meetings with them talking about the strategy and direction of the company. And then even after I left, we stayed in touch. I mean, I talked with both of them at least a few times a year and like they offer advice and introductions. I do, you know, do as much of the same as I can. And it's just, it's really cool to have like a founder, founders be that, um, that okay with you like moving on in your career arc and still being your friend and still being like a mentor or helping you out when they can. So I, I got to say a big, you know, shout out to them. And honestly, all my, my, again, all my startup bosses were really cool like that. 
That's so cool. Um, especially early on that they're like treating you like, like not an equal, but like someone that's that strategic partner and with that respect. And it's, there's this book called the Alliance by Chris. Yeah. He also wrote like Blitzscaling with Reed Hoffman. I'm just now reading it, but he talks about like, when you hire people, it's a tour of duty, but what kind of tour of duty is, is it just rotational? Then it means nothing. If it's transformative, you're going to transform their career. Like with yours, you went from like this manager to eventually a CTO because of that experience. Yep. Or it's like foundational because you're going to be there forever. And I'm just trying to like, as I'm trying to hire a good talent, it's like, how can I create these tours of duty that are either transformational or, or foundational? Yeah. But, and, and that's like, it's also like a, I don't want to call this like a trick or like you're convincing people, but it's like, how do you convince really good, smart people to work for you or work with you and stick around? It's not by paying them more and more all the time, because that's not the answer that's sustainable. And it's not really what you have that's unique. What you have that's unique in a small business is the ability to give them like ownership level responsibility. Like if you think about like we're hiring, you know, engineers and editors and people like this who could go work at big companies like Amazon and Facebook, but there they'd be some tiny cog in this massive machine. They'd have no insight in how anything works. They'd never, the promotion path is on the order of decades, not like months. And so <laughs> we can, we can just completely flip that around and be like, look, we're not going to pay you the top dollar. We, you, you get that. We get that. We can't do it. But we're going to give you insight into everything the company does. The, the, like, I'll give you the behind-the-scenes numbers. I'll tell you how much a client's worth to us. You'll get to know how a whole real company runs. And then you'll see your things you do have a direct impact on that. And, I mean, to again, to me, that was really appealing as an employee. And I think it is to a certain subset of employees. So, you know, don't try to hire just because this is the way the big companies do it. Like, be like, what do we have that's unique? What can we offer these, you know, really interesting, engaged people? That's a really good point, like selling on impact and transparency and really moving the needle for a business. Whereas, yeah, if you're at Amazon or Facebook, you're like working on tweaking a color of a button of a sign-up page or something. What right. what advice would you give to founders that like want it? Because you talk about like creating transparency and giving like ownership, like any advice on like how you build that into your week to week or day to day. Like for me, I, I do like a Friday update to the team because I'm just trying to be like, Here's everything we're working on. Cause I hated when I was working at a company. I'm like, what are they like? What, what's going on here? What's he working on every week? I try not to hide behind a curtain. Like any advice on, on that part of it? Yeah, we have a few things we do to, to sort of push transparency. So we're all remote. Um, so we adopted a tool when we first started called Status Hero that lets us do like uh, transparent updates across the whole team. So every, it's a daily standup tool that's asynchronous and everybody on the team fills it out every day. And so it just says, what are you working on? What's coming next? And uh, are you blocked by anything? Very simple tool. Uh, but what I love about it is that I can go in and see what anybody else is doing. They can see what I'm doing. And it's just like, it's. It, I don't use it to check in and spy on people. It's just like, I'm curious. And a lot of times people are putting fun stuff in, like I'm going to the you know the beach this weekend with the family and or they took some pictures of like something they just did. And you can comment on that. It's like really fun. So that's one thing uh, to just for the day-to-day -day transparency. And then big picture, like high level, what we're doing right now is adopting OKRs. And th this is a system like uh, I think Intel and Google may be some of the first pioneers in it. But basically, it's a system for managing and organizing the whole business from the top down. And it gives people transparency into the top level objectives of the company and how what they're doing on the initiative level. So what they're doing day to day and how it pushes towards those top level objectives. And it also involves data and, and key results and, and tracking and things. So it's been really great. Everybody on the team has been like, this is amazing to look at one spreadsheet and be like, this is what everybody is focused on and knowing that. 
Um, it just adds a ton of transparency and it includes things I'm working on, things that our director of operations and, and all the account managers are working on. Um, so it's really stuff like that, um, adopting some kind of system. I think, especially once you get to 10 or more employees, your the transparency breaks down because it's just impossible for everyone to see what everybody else is doing. So you have to build a system that enables that transparency. That's a really good advice. And I had not heard of Status Hero. That looks pretty legit. Um, of course, there's a SaaS tool for that. So um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we we early on, like some people do this in Slack too. We early on just said, we're not going to do Slack. We're going to do as much asynchronous as we can so that it's friendly for all time zones and you know global places people want to work. Uh, and that's just kind of like a personal values mixed with like the kind of people I wanted to hire. And I kind of think this is, uh, for the kind of business we run, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, no, this is very cool. Well, well, Carl, where can we point people if they want to learn more about, you know, you, what you're working on, about draft.dev? Where should they go? Yeah, I, I'm always writing, or well, I'll try to write at least a couple times a month on my personal blog. It's uh, carllhughes.com and Carl's with a K. So uh, th- that's kind of personally where you can find me. And then um, draft.dev is our URL for the company. Nice short domain name with a weird uh, awesome. TLD on it. Uh, <laughs> and then uh, uh, otherwise, I, I'm pretty active on Twitter too. I think we talk on there a little bit. So we, it's, it's always fun to, to meet other people that are hanging out there. And then uh, EO too, if you happen to be an EO member, definitely uh, reach me through there. I would always love to meet other members. I'm, I'm very new at it. So that'd be cool. Yeah. And again, Carl's blog is really strong. I strongly recommend you go to it. He has a great post on productivity, 30 side projects, um, you know, types of entrepreneurship, how to get funded without equity. It, it really is kind of a nice hub for anyone that's kind of at that early phase of, of, of getting started. Um, but uh, Carl, dude, so fun to meet you. Uh, we'll have to have you come back on and go through your Trello board. But thanks again for the time. Thank you, Jim. It's really fun to hang out and I look forward to talking again soon. Today's episode is brought to you by no one. Yep, we have zero sponsors. I haven't reached out to any companies, nor would I expect a reputable brand to give me money. But I'll give a few plugs. First, I send a weekly newsletter each Thursday featuring five articles or tools that have helped me. You can sign up for these weekly updates at jimwhuffman.com. Second, for anyone running a startup, if you need help growing your business, check out Growth Hit. GrowthHit serves as your external growth team. After working with over 100 startups and generating a quarter billion in sales for clients, GrowthHit has perfected a growth process that's hell-bent on driving ROI through rapid experiments. Plus, you'll get to work with yours truly. So if you want to work with a team that's worked with startups that have been funded by Andreessen Horowitz or featured on Shark Tank, then check out GrowthHit.com. And finally, I wrote a book called The Growth Marketer's Playbook that takes everything I've learned as a growth mentor for venture-backed startups, and I've distilled it down to 140 pages. So instead of hiring a growth team, save yourself some money, get the book, and you can just do it yourself. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and I'd love to hear feedback. I'm on Twitter at Jim W. Huffman.